Timothy. In this episode of Three Chords in the Truth, I'll be talking to Dr. Matthew Levering, a prolific author and professor of theology at Mundelein Seminary. The key questions that we'll be discussing are what knowledge of God is available through reason and the natural world, and why does the physical resurrection of Jesus even matter? I'm Garrick, and in the second half of this week's episode, Timothy and I will be looking at the material world and the spiritual world in one of the greatest rock and roll hits of all time, Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. If you're interested in learning more about classical and evidential arguments for God's existence, take a look at Come Let Us Reason, new essays in Christian apologetics edited by William Lane Craig and published by our friends at B&H Academic. For more information about Come Let Us Reason and many other outstanding resources, visit bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. Thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth books and merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. I'm Timothy Paul Jones, and today I have with me Dr. Matthew Levering, an outstanding scholar, a very thoughtful author of many books. Dr. Levering teaches at Mundelein Seminary at University of St. Mary on the Lake in Illinois, and there he serves as the James and Mary Perry Chair of Theology, and he's currently working on a nine-volume dogmatic theology, of which I believe three volumes are now available, Creation, Revelation, and the Holy Spirit, if my bookshelves are telling me the truth right now on that. So he's one-third of the way through that dogmatic theology. He has also written just an excellent introduction to the theology of Augustine. But today, what I want to talk about with Dr. Levering are a couple of apologetics-related books that he has written, Proofs of God and Did Jesus Rise from the Dead. Dr. Levering, thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth. Thank you for having me. Well, we are all about apologetics on this particular program, but we are also all about rock and roll. And so, with that in mind, let's start with this question. If you could be a member of any rock band in all of the history of rock and roll, what band would it be and what instrument would you play? Well, you know, the thing about this is that I have children who are now in their teenage and and moving into college age. And so my answer to you really is, an odd answer because what I want to be is I want to be a member. If I had to choose that, I'd be a member of a band that one of my kids would greatly admire and would wish they knew me. You know how it is with kids that they idolize these bands. So especially One Direction. And what instrument would that be, or what would you be doing in that particular band? 
I suppose. I think they only have guitars. Okay, so that's what you'd be thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So Matthew Levering, member of One Direction and uh, playing guitar in One Direction. (laughs) Well, as far as I'm concerned, rock and roll is one of the greatest proofs of God's goodness in the natural world. It's right up there for me with baseball beaches and steak fajitas, which brings me to this question, and that is... What knowledge of God do you see that we can gain as human beings through natural reason or philosophy? What can we really know about God through those those tools of our natural faculties, our natural reason and philosophy? Well, I think the, the main thing is we can know that God exists, and then we know certain aspects of, we can say certain things about God's existence. But of course, the main important thing here, I think, really is just that we encounter impediments as we, even in our own lives, as we move through life, impediments to the gospel, impediments to God's grace. And so these impediments, one of the major ones really is that people, they're often taught that our mind is not made for God, that our mind is made only to know empirical things and that we can't reach up to God through our mind. And so they they give up. There can be people who can go into despair and they, they think of then religion as something that is for people who are no longer using their minds, as it were. Faith is sort of a blind thing, a blind leap. And, and so this becomes a very much an impediment to sharing faith with other people because they, they think, you know, we, we must be irrational. That is a big concern of mine. So according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, What may be known about God is plain to humanity because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So as you think about that, you're thinking about that people may sometimes think that they can't use their minds, in essence, to know God. What hope does that text give us, or what information does that text give us that can help us as we try to make a case for the existence of God, and not only make a case for the existence of God, but that God can truly be known in some sense through our minds? How should those words of Paul shape what we do? Well, for me, those words of Paul are fundamental. Essentially, the main point is that our mind is created to know God. In other words, God didn't give us minds to hide himself. I mean, our minds are, we can see as we live in the world, we see the beauty of the world. Our minds are able to know so much beauty and so much power about the things in this world. We look at what natural scientists can do. And we've got to realize that it's not only natural scientists who can have great insights, like Stephen Hawking about the created world. And there's so much complexity. It's incredible what the natural scientists can do But really, our minds are made to know God and to know his eternity, to know his simplicity, you know, his pure actuality, his goodness, his wisdom. These things are things our minds are made to know these things. Now, we know we're going to need more than that in order to have a relationship with God. But it's important to know that God made our minds to have a relationship with him, to know him and to lift up our minds, to contemplate his reality. That's what we're made for. 
As you just pointed out, we need more as human beings than our natural minds can attain. We need more than that. And in your book, Proofs of God, which just there's a really excellent point you make in that particular book, Proofs of God, and you say the demonstrability of God's existence doesn't make divine revelation redundant. It makes revelation all the more desirable and urgent. In other words, knowing a truth about God through reason, it doesn't reduce the need for divine revelation. Instead, it shows us how much we need divine revelation. And that when I read that, that's just a really an excellent point that I think we often miss, that when we're talking about natural revelation, we're not saying natural revelation to the exclusion of any need for other knowledge of God. Rather, natural revelation should drive us toward and to recognize our deep need for other knowledge of God. And to me, that fits so well with Thomas Aquinas, what he said in his apologetics book, Summa Contra Gentiles, this treatise against the pagans. He said, we hold by faith even those truths that the human reason is able to investigate. In other words, simply because human reason can investigate them doesn't mean there's not faith involved in that believing them or knowing them. And so with all that in mind, how can we make certain that our emphasis on the truths that are available through human reason, how can we make sure that our emphasis on those truths doesn't diminish the importance of divine revelation and grace? How do we make sure of that? Well, I think in in terms of this question, I know from our own experience, I myself have taught the proofs of God. I've taught the demonstrations. Of course, a lot of these demonstrations come from Aristotle or from the church fathers or or others and so on. And so I've taught these demonstrations, but the problem is is that they are complex. There's a certain amount of complexity sometimes to the um, demonstrations. The main point is, is this, is that even though God made our minds to know him, we are fallen creatures. And so we're not all going to be contemplatives. We're not all going to be philosophical masters. And even if we are philosophical masters, we can still be locked in error, error about God and about who he is and who he is for us. And besides, the truth is, is that if you prove to me, Timothy, that you exist, and I finally believe that I could know Timothy Jones, I finally believe that it wouldn't do me any good unless we could actually have an encounter, unless I could actually be in relationship with you, a a real relationship that's a personal relationship in which you draw me into your life. I mean, that's what we care about. That's what we're created for. So this is, of course, the main thing. And and to me, the fact that we can know God by our natural reason, our created powers of intellect, just reminds us how good God is. He wants to share himself with us, and he does so in Savar as he creates us to know him. And of course, we're fallen, but But he creates us to know him, and then he gives us grace to know him and to be in relationship with him. He's a good, incredible Lord. And speaking of the goodness of God and what he's revealed to us and our deep need for that, one of the supreme ways, of course, that God demonstrates that to us is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you've written a book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ entitled, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? And this is a topic that has been written on so much. Obviously, the resurrection of Jesus, you've got people like N.T. Wright, Mike Lacona, who have written magisterial works on the resurrection. What caused you to want to write a book on the resurrection of Jesus? I think that one of the things that people often don't look at is the fact that the apostolic testimony 
was not overly, they avoided overly spiritualizing it. And when they could have, within their culture, it was quite common to speak of heavenly ascents or heavenly journeys. And so this was actually a common way. So they could have presented Jesus as having undertaken a heavenly journey. When he died, he would have undertaken a heavenly ascent where he would shine like the light. What? And so on. they had this language in, in their culture for something that if they were just making things up, they could have easily done that. And also what we find is that this spiritualization of the resurrection is quite common. The Gnostics did it in the very early centuries. And then today we have a lot of scholars, a lot of professors who also spiritualize away the resurrection in modern materialist ways. So my point is this, the apostles could have spiritualized, and the gospel writers, Paul and everyone, they could have spiritualized away the, the resurrection, but instead they chose the most difficult route. They chose something that was the hardest path. And and I think that's that right there, that's important evidence. It's not the only evidence, but it, it's important evidence that they chose the hardest, hardest path. Well, one place where you go beyond, for example, N.T. Wright and others who have written monographs on the subject of the resurrection is in your treatment of the witness of the Old Testament. I think that's one of the unique contributions you make in your book on the resurrection that really hasn't often been made. I think of, of as I said, N.T. Wright, Mike Lacona, others who have written on the resurrection. They write it beginning with the texts that we have and the testimony we have that are explicitly about the resurrection looking back to the resurrection. But you kind of step over into the Old Testament and look forward to the resurrection in some sense from the Old Testament. And I think that's a very unique and distinct contribution of your book that you really press the field forward of apologetics and of research into the resurrection. Could you talk a little bit more about how you work the Old Testament into your particular presentation about the resurrection. Well, I was curious about this in the church fathers and the medievals. So I took I took a look at Thomas Aquinas and when he's commenting on John's depiction of Jesus' resurrection. And I noticed that he's he was quoting the Old Testament. And in fact, I noticed also that he thinks that scripture itself is one of the most important evidences. And by scripture he means the scriptures of Israel. So scripture itself is one of the most important evidences that Jesus truly rose. And I think that, that was a big insight. Now, when you're dealing with people like N.T. Wright, of course, they do bring in the Old Testament in a certain way, in, in a very rich way, I would say, in the sense that they follow John, John Levinson and other scholars who speak about resurrection and the restoration of Israel as God sort of is preparing for the restoration of Israel. And so they sort of follow John Levinson's path. And I think that's a good path. But I instead try to I point out that Thomas Aquinas, as he's working on this in his commentary on the Gospel of John, Thomas Aquinas begins with Genesis. I go through the different biblical sources that he uses, but Genesis is a key one because God is the creator. God brings things brings things out of nothing and so on. And so this is a to me, this is a very important background. You gotta get gotta get rooted in, in Genesis and the fact that God can bring creatures out of nothing. And, and so can God raise the dead? Of course God can, and so on. And so that's my strategy there. But I'm not doing anything new, really. I'm just drawing upon earlier commentary, Thomas Aquinas in this case. 
I mean, we see that not only in Aquinas, we see that in also in even the earlier, the apostolic fathers, the ancient fathers of the church, Justin Martyr. I think of how he draws from some of these in his dialogue with Trifo. And I think it may be in the early fathers, one of their, part of their argument they're often making for the truthfulness of Christianity is the antiquity of Christianity. And part of the way they demonstrate the antiquity, and by that, what they mean is not that Christianity itself is old, but rather that it has roots, it has foundations that reach far back beyond itself uh, into the Old Testament. And so they draw from that to demonstrate the antiquity, I think probably trying to play to the fact that the Romans valued that which was old. And so they were really trying to play to the antiquity of that. But in the process, they are not embarrassed in the early church fathers to utilize the Old Testament as part of their testimony to the truthfulness of Jesus. And I think in our times today, we've often gotten kind of embarrassed to use the Old Testament to argue for Jesus. We kind of shy away from that. And I think it's something that it's good for us to consider how we can recover that, how we can reclaim that, because the early church fathers were certainly not hesitant to draw from the Old Testament in that way. And I think that even in that, we're also being, we're resonating with, I think of something in Augustine, as you were talking about that the scriptures themselves are formed to point forward to Jesus. I love what Augustine does at one point in one of his writings where he begins to develop this idea that not only the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, but creation itself was created as it is to bear witness to Jesus. And he talks about how it's not that we somehow how use the spring, the emergence from winter to spring of death to life that we see in that retroactively that, oh, that's kind of like God bringing Jesus from the dead. Rather, he says, it's the other way around. It's that God in the beginning created the seasons as he created them with Jesus already in mind and the truth that Jesus would emerge from the dead. Jesus would be raised from the dead. Death would come from life. And so God created the universe itself with Jesus in mind. And in the same way he formed, he inspired the scriptures already with Jesus in mind as well. It is so much more of a much more multifaceted and beautiful understanding of the identity and the character and the nature of God and what God is up to in the scriptures and in his creation. When we think about it in that way, that beautiful way that Augustine and others bring forward to our attention at that point. I think that's right. And let me add let me add one thing there because I have a chapter in the book on love. And so of course um the context of creation is crucial for the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is really a love story. It's a love story. And and so we can embrace the Old Testament in that way, the scriptures of Israel, because they're testifying to a God who loves us into he loves his people into, into existence and he comes and meets them and even when they fall, he cares for them and so on. And there's so much, the profundity of the love there is extraordinary. And you see that Jesus, the reason the resurrection of Jesus is good news, and the reason it is believable, the reason it is credible is because it, it does fit with what God has done in creation, with what God has done in forming that people and showing that people love. Our God is the God of love. 
Well, right now, as we think about the goodness of God, the love of God, the providence of God, many of these themes we're talking about right now, our nation and indeed the world is presently in a time of trauma due to the spread of the coronavirus and all of the impact of that. And I think about in that how Thomas Aquinas once said that death has the power to stun the mind even of a Christian, and we are all being stunned right now in some sense by what we're seeing around us. And so my question to you about that is, what does Christian theology and the resurrection of Jesus and the love of God, what do those things have to offer the world uniquely during such a time as this and what we're seeing around us on the news all the time? Well, and the good news is, and the good news is always good because what Christianity is proclaiming is that obviously death is not going to have the last word. But the main point, though, as I see it, is that right now we are facing sort of a time of deep uncertainty. It's it's not so much the numbers of people dying. That's a grave tragedy. A large numbers of people dying. Of course, that's a grave tragedy. But we're also kind of going through this in a situation where we're being isolated. We're having to separate from each other. There's a certain sense of loneliness, isolation. And then there's also, as we sort of look to the future, we kind of wonder, will we have jobs in a year from now? (laughs) Will our institutions survive this? Even will our churches survive it? Will people have enough money to continue to give to even to their church? And it's as if we're sort of on the brink of a precipice. We can feel that way and, and feel quite isolated also at the same time. Well, there's nothing better than the resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ for this, because if there ever was a precipice, it's got to be the cross. Our problem is, is that we do want to rest in this world. We do want security in this world. And what better place in America to have security in this world? We have great health care. We had a booming economy. So we want security in this world. We want to rest here. But we're pilgrims, so we're going to have to get on those pilgrim shoes and follow Jesus, get close to the cross. The resurrection points us back to the cross. Maybe that's not good for apologetics, but I hope it is, because the cross is good news. The cross is great news. The resurrection points us back there. And from the cross, we can then enter into that mystery of the resurrection, which is not accessible except through the cross. Remember that, through that love that is in the cross. That's where we get that real resurrection power. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on this program. Just really appreciate the time that you've brought and the wisdom that you've brought to our listeners today. I appreciate you. I thank you so much for what you're doing, Timothy. I'm very grateful for what you do. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. And listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of Dr. Levering's book, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? An excellent book that really does plow some new ground in terms of thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus.
This is that moment when, in each episode of Three Chords and the Truth, we take toys from our children's toy boxes and we reveal them to one another and place them into mortal combat with one another such that only one toy survives. And so, this week, I'm bringing forth a toy from my oldest daughter, who's now in her early 20s at this time, and it is this amazing, powerful zebra. (laughs) It is a zebra. Now, let me tell you about why this zebra is so important and why I chose it for this particular time. As many of our listeners know, my oldest daughter was recently had coronavirus and was in intensive care and in a medically induced coma for about 11 days. And when she began to be brought out of this medically induced coma, she had many interesting recollections of the time that she was in the coma. One of those had to do with she swore up and down that there had been a parade in the intensive care unit complete with animals at one point. And another one was that somebody had brought her a zebra. And so she swore up and down, told the nurses that somewhere she had a zebra. And it got to the point when she was coming out of this that we finally just went and got a zebra and brought it in simply to allay her concerns about what had happened to her zebra. And so this is a zebra. But of course, this is not just any zebra. This is a very powerful zebra. This is a zebra which has endured many battles. And probably knowing the child of yours from whom a toy is coming. I think that the best thing that we're going to be able to say about this is zebras, because of their stripe pattern, are able to hide. They are able to hide in the savannas of Africa, and therefore, I think the best hope for this very fierce and very battle-hardened zebra to survive is the fact that it is going to be able to hide. I think that's very perceptive of you, because the toy that I'm presenting today comes from my middle child, my nine-year-old son, who, when I asked for him to choose this week's toy, chose his most powerful of Pokemon characters that he loves so much. Eli, tell us about the toy that you brought to the battle today. Well, for one thing, it's a tag team. A tag team is... A tag team what? A tag team is where two Pokemon join together to fight one other Pokemon. So basically, who I am brought today is Rashiram and Charizard, the one Pokemon tag team that I love to use. What kind of Pokemon are they? Dragon and Fire type. Dragon is basically where... Well, they're both dragons, that's for sure. And fire type is because they breathe fire. Rashiram actually has different types. It can use ice beam and fire ball. And it has different types too. It could be water, depending on where it is, or fire. So what I have is a fire type. Even if the beloved striped zebra was able to hide in the savanna, it sounds like Charizard and Rashiram could essentially just set the whole savanna on fire. (laughs) 
And Charizard, isn't that a lettuce? I think that's a lettuce that my wife inflicted on us one time. So. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> very sure. close. Very, so very so close now, what is the vision, though? Do they have great vision? Do dragons have vision? Do they have ratings on this in Pokemon? How is their vision? Because can they see, in the midst of the savanna, can they see blessed little Stripey here hiding behind the yeah, grasses? It's really possible that they couldn't see. I don't know. I don't have, like, a book of all the attributes. I'm sure somebody does. It's not listed as one of their weaknesses that they don't see well, though I guess it's possible. But again, if they're self-aware and they know their weaknesses, then essentially they're just going to set the grasslands on fire and poor Stripey over there will have nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. Yeah, I don't think there's any <laughs> chance of Stripey surviving. I, I usually can come up. I mean, yeah. sharp hooves, hiding, anything. Pretty much there's nuclear level destruction coming That's, from yeah. uh, the Pokemon characters. Eli, I need you to answer one final question. Is there any possible way, any situation in which you could envision a zebra defeating the Rashiram Charizard tag team? No, not not if you have a Pokemon that is its move is um before you attack, you can heal any Pokemon above 20 or below 10. What about just a regular zebra, a non-Pokemon zebra? Could it defeat this tag team? No way. You heard it here, folks. If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. Today we're going to take a look at one of the greatest rock songs of all time, Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's buying the stairway to when she gets I have an interesting relationship with Led Zeppelin because it's a band that I can't really recall when I became so aware of them. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, that when Wayne's World released, right, the first Wayne's World, and there's the scene where he begins to play Stairway to Heaven on the guitar and, you know, it gets denied and all that kind of stuff. If I remember correctly, the first time I ever saw that movie, I didn't get the joke because I didn't know about Stairway to Heaven. But as time went on, and I've talked before about the period of my teenage years that were a darker period, spiraling downwards. Led Zeppelin 
was a big part of that, not a result of and, and certainly not a cause of. But as I began to express myself more in, in music, Led Zeppelin certainly had certain songs and albums that fed into the person that I was back then and the certain activities that I was involved in. Well, I remember vividly when I first heard about Led Zeppelin, and when I first heard it, I was either eight or nine years old, and as often happens, as this is just the way I heard my first rock and roll. I heard rock and roll backwards a long time before I heard it forwards, and it was one of those preachers who came to our church and had a record player that he would turn backwards so that we would hear the supposedly satanic messages in Led Zeppelin's music in this particular instance, and it was Stairway to Heaven. And the reason I remember that is because they made a big deal about the fact that early on in Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, it has the words, sometimes the words have two meanings. And according to this preacher, this was the sign, this was the declaration to their satanic fans that they should play this backwards, was that it has two meanings. And if I remember correctly, the claim was that the phrase bustle in your hedgerow played backwards is here's to my sweet Satan. And so it wasn't until I was about 15 years old, I believe it was, that I actually began to hear Led Zeppelin forwards. And they sound far better forwards than they do backwards. Gosh, I bet. Led Zeppelin came together 10 years before my birth in 1968. That wasn't the year of my birth. That's when they came together. And at first, like many of the bands that we speak about, they weren't called Led Zeppelin, but instead they were called the New Yardbirds. But in 1966, Jeff Beck did this instrumental that is an amazing instrumental called Beck's Bolero. And he did it with this session guitar player named Jimmy Page. And the others who participated in this were Keith Moon and John Entwistle, who were part of the band The Who. And so they started to talk about what if we were to form this super group? And indeed, it would have been a super group of us together to do music because this Beck's Bolero turned out to be just this astounding, amazing instrumental, this rock instrumental. And John Entwistle jokingly said, well, that will go over like a lead balloon. And Keith Moon kind of added to that and said, how about a lead Zeppelin? It will go over like a lead Zeppelin. Of course, a Zeppelin being like a blimp, basically. And so it's his joke of saying this is going to fall apart if we were to do this. Well, a few weeks after that, the Yardbirds bass player quit. Jimmy Page, he jumped in on bass and then later became the guitar player. And then Jeff Beck quit. And by summer of 1968, the Yardbirds had completely broken up, but they were still contracted to tour Scandinavia. They were contracted for a series of concerts. There's another band that had also recently broken up called the Band of Joy. And kind of from the fragments of the Yardbirds and the Band of Joy, they came together and John Paul Jones, John Bonham, Robert Plant, and Jimmy Page page to form this band that initially was called the New Yardbirds, but then eventually they just picked up this name that had been suggested as part of a joke about when they were talking about this possible supergroup, and they called themselves Led Zeppelin, but respelled Led so that it was L-E-D because they wanted to make sure people didn't call it Lead yeah, Zeppelin. Lead Zeppelin exactly. <laughs> so they renamed it for that and respelled it. Exactly. So apparently they were very fond of the name Led Zeppelin because that was the name 
name of all three of their first albums. So all the creativity was inside of the album, was in their music, and not so much the naming of their albums. So you had Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin 2, Led Zeppelin 3. And then in November of 1971, because all amazing things happen in the month of November, came an album with no name at all. Well, at this time, when they were actually recording this album, leading up to this album, Led Zeppelin, like perhaps no other band before them, was absolutely wallowing in every excess of rock and roll. They were throwing themselves fully into that. And yet, even as they have this absolute just wallowing in the excesses of rock and roll, at the same time, they had sort of this mystical streak. They had started reading J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. That had become very popular during this time. And so they're reading that. They're jumping into a lot of different things. There's a spirituality in their music sometimes that comes through the blues. They're all also dabbling in the occult and things like that. There's this spiritual, mystical kind of streak that happens in Led Zeppelin, particularly at this time. And it's during this time they do record this fourth album, which has no name. They simply represent themselves on the album in the cover with these four symbols. And it is the high point, as I said, of Led Zeppelin's career. It really is. And the fourth song on Side One is the one we're looking at today, and that song is Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. The question, though, is, and maybe this is a question people have heard before, is the song Stairway to Heaven really their song at all? Because according to some people, the opening guitar part in Stairway to Heaven was actually stolen from another band. Yeah, there was a band called Spirit, and they did this song called Taurus. And if you look at them together and listen to them together, you recognize very, very quickly that there is a brief section in this song, Taurus, by Spirit, that is lifted directly and is part of the intro to Stairway to Heaven. And I don't think there's any way we can deny that Jimmy Page borrowed this from that. But it's a very small section in a much larger song, and the rest of the song does nothing that Stairway to Heaven does. There's a reason why most people haven't heard of Spirit and everybody's heard of Led Zeppelin, because what Led <laughs> Zeppelin does with this is far greater than anything that Spirit even attempted to do in this particular song. Robert Plant wrote the words, most all the words for it, sitting in front of a log fire at Headley Grange at the studio they had set up in the house with the Rolling Stones mobile studio equipment. And so Robert Plant sat down listening to the music and he just started writing and wrote the words, there's a lady is sure, all that glitters is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven. He said he wrote those words and they just leaped off the page and then he just started to write the rest of it and wrote about 80 percent of the lyrics just in a few moments while listening to them rehearse and try to put the song together what really has always gotten me about the song is how it builds
because it's easy to play poorly and very hard to play well, that it is pretty much outlawed in music stores. The thing in Wayne's world is a real thing. If you walk into a music store and you pick up a guitar and you start playing Stairway to Heaven, things will happen. People will mock you at that point, and rightly so, because very few people can play this song well, but many, many people, and especially budding guitar players that haven't quite got it yet, they can play it very poorly and feel like they're playing it very, very well. And they just kind of appeal to their own Jimmy Page. Anyway, it's pretty bad in most instances. And uh, I know better than to play this without a lot of rehearsal. Yeah. So let's move on to the content of the song apart from the music. What exactly is Stairway to Heaven even about? Yeah, the thing is, is that no one is quite sure. Robert Plant, even, who wrote the lyrics at Headley Grange, is not quite sure. He said, depending on what day it is, I interpret the song in a different way. And so there's no one certain set meaning for this particular song. Which baffles me because I know that later in the late 70s, Plant began to get tired of the song on tour and basically said something like, you can only play it so many times and mean it, which is strange to me if the song itself doesn't even have a particular meaning. So there was depth there, regardless if Plant could put his finger on the precise meaning of the content. So one of the only times that Robert Plant did describe the point of the song, he said, it's a cynical aside about a woman who gets everything she wants all the time without giving back any thought or consideration. So essentially, in the 70s, one of the greatest rock songs to ever be written is just an early version of Madonna's Material Girl or Billy Joel's later Uptown Girl. Now, I'm not claiming in this to know more about Stairway to Heaven than the person who wrote it, but I will say what it makes the most sense to me and that I think really does make sense in the context, and that is that what you have in this song is sort of a tension between materialism on the one hand and a yearning for spiritual reality on the other hand. I think that's what's going on. That tension is what produces the power in this song, is the tension between materialism on the one hand and sort of a yearning for spiritual reality on the other hand. And I think you do begin to see that early in the song. It starts out with this woman who is uncertain and untrusting because she says words can have two meanings. And it seems like even there that it's trying to communicate there are two realities and two meanings to the world in which we live. And then it goes on to say, there's a songbird who sings. And it seems like throughout the song, there is a songbird, there's a piper, a song that is calling us out of a purely material existence into something higher, that in the midst of the material pleasures and the material possessions, there's a call from another realm, and it's something elusive that we all yearn for. And as this happens, what Robert Plant sings is, it makes me wonder, 
it makes me wonder. And I really do believe that that's part of what's going on in this particular song. I think that becomes even clearer in the next verse when Plant sings, there's a feeling I get when I look to the West and my spirit is crying for leaving. There is this, an obvious yearning for something, something beyond that which Plant feels like he can touch in this world, something beyond what it is he can see and smell and sense. Yeah, and I think in this, part of this is that's going on is from the Lord of the Rings. Of course, the West in the Lord of the Rings is this land beyond where they go at the very end, that part in the movie at the end of Return of the King, where they spend roughly 40 minutes just saying goodbye at the end of that particular movie. It yes. goes on a lot. It's moving. Yeah. It's touching. It's great. But it's really, really long. It's just interesting how... The Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, along with others, but this grand epic narrative, how it appears in a number of songs from this album. It's just, it's fascinating. You can pick it up in songs as you listen to them. I've noticed it before, but sitting down and listening to the whole album becomes even more apparent. So, as you mentioned, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, he was a committed Roman Catholic, right? A devout, faithful Roman Catholic. His thinking and writing is deeply shaped by the worldview of theologians long gone, like Augustine of Hippo, who we've mentioned many times. And that's so different, so not where Led Zeppelin was and and how they were thinking at this time. Right. Yeah. During this time, Led Zeppelin, they are just in the midst of decadent pursuit of every possible pleasure. There had been bands in the past that were about social change or something like that. But Led Zeppelin is about the music and all of the experiences that come with it. That's what they're about. And there's no regard, really, in Led Zeppelin for anyone but themselves, which is why I find it interesting that Robert Plant speaks of this song being about somebody who takes and takes, but who never gives back, who takes of material pleasures and never in any way gives anything back because that's kind of Led Zeppelin during this time, whether they realized it or not. They're into abuse of hotel rooms, abuse of women, abuse of drugs, abuse of pretty much everything. And yet at the same time, they have this spiritual longing. When Robert Plant wrote these words, he's reading a lot about myths and magic and the occult. He's reading a book by Lewis Spence called Magic Arts in Celtic Britain. And he's got this yearning for something spiritual. And I think that's why you have this piper, for example, showing up in the song who wants to lead us to a new day. When it speaks of the bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now. It's just a spring clean for a May queen. Those lines that I was told meant, here's to my sweet Satan, is what they were backwards. I've never listened to them backwards since that time when I was eight or nine years old, so I don't know. But the bustle in the hedgerow seems to be something about something on the other side of our division between this world in the next one. Remember, a hedgerow in England is what separates property. It's a hedge that separates property, different realms. And I think what it's trying to get at is if there's a rustling in the hedgerow, a bustling in the hedgerow, it's that there's something on the other side. There's something real on the other side of this world. There is a spiritual 
reality. And it is kind of fascinating. I went through and actually read this book, Magic Arts in Celtic Britain, that he was reading at the time. And there's actually a story in there about St. Bridget of Kildare. And St. Bridget of Kildare was a nun in Ireland in the 5th century, I believe. And yet this particular book, it recasts her not as a saint, as she's known in the Catholic tradition, but rather as a druid priestess. And she lives on the other side of an enchanted hedgerow that no man can cross. And so she's actually lives within a hedgerow. There's the spiritual reality on the other side of the hedgerow. kind of wonder if he's speaking to himself, if that's something he's telling himself more than he is telling the listener. And in the final verse of the song, Plant sings these lines. He says, as we wind on down the road, our shadows taller than our souls, there walks a lady we all know who shines white light and wants to show how everything still turns to gold. And I think you're right that there's some level at which he is singing to himself. And I do think that the most beautiful poetic lines in this is that line, as we wind on down the road, our shadows taller than our souls. What a beautiful line right there. And we don't know for sure if this lady is the same one as at the beginning of the song or someone else. I tend to think it's the same one because she's still trying to say that gold is the answer, how everything still turns to gold. But she's still trying to offer this satisfaction through the material realm and through material means. And this light that she has from her causes us to have shadows that are taller than our souls. But whatever the meaning of this particular part, it seems like there are at least two clear themes in the song. You have a woman who seeks satisfaction by throwing herself completely into the material world and all that it has to offer. But we also have a piper, a bird who is kind of calling this tune from the other side of the hedgerow, so to speak, that tells us there is something more. And all of this, this tension we have here raises the question that we ought to ask is how should Christians view the material world and what the material world has to offer? One of those is what we often call asceticism, asceticism, this sort of self-denial and not merely self-denial in a good sense, but a denial of the goodness of physical and material pleasures. This idea that the physical, the material world is somehow evil and tainted, and this idea that that which is physical is evil. And what we don't recognize in that is that when humanity fell into sin, it's not just the physical world that fell and was tainted. It was the spiritual world as well. In other words, the divide between good and evil is not a divide between the physical and the spiritual, but rather the physical and the spiritual both fell into sinfulness and into being tainted and distorted when humanity rebelled against God. The division is not between the material and the spiritual. It's between the powers that are arrayed for God and those that are arrayed against God. 
God's design. And in its extreme form, this belief that the material world is evil is often called Gnosticism. Okay. And the early church, they rejected Gnosticism. The greatest one who fought against a Gnosticism and has some brilliant, brilliant ideas and thoughts about the goodness of the material world is a guy named Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyon. And yet, even though the church rejected Gnosticism, they rejected this idea of the physical world being evil. At the same time, some parts of that did kind of work their way into the church as well. And you see it even in great theologians like Augustine, this idea of a physical world, physical pleasures, all of those things being inherently evil. And the result, though, practically in our lives, if we have an ascetic view of the material world, that it's somehow evil and we need to deny that and reject the material realm, it results in just feelings of shame about any thing that is good in the material world. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, yeah, okay, I, I definitely don't look at the material world and things that are physical and tangible as evil, so I'm in the clear there. The dualism, there's all types of degrees of dualism, but essentially when we create or accept a hierarchy in creation, when we start saying there are physical and spiritual things, and the spiritual is inherently better because God is spirit, and so therefore the things that are physical are somewhat inferior or less awesome, to any degree that we do this, we essentially are playing into this dualism. And so what you have here, you've got Led Zeppelin. They are throwing themselves wholly and completely into material yes, pleasures. They are. Completely <laughs> in every single way of ways that we will not even talk about on this podcast. They're throwing themselves completely in that, yet they feel the pull of the spiritual world. And we have Christians, though. What has happened with Christians or has tended to happen is that we throw ourselves into the spiritual and think that that's the good, and yet we don't know how to deal with the material, but we feel the pull of that and aren't sure how to contextualize that in God's good and beautiful design. And what we have to recognize is that it's not an either-or. It's not a throw yourself into the material world fully and to its pleasures and try to ignore the spiritual world even though it haunts you and pulls at you, nor is it to throw yourself into the spiritual realm and try to ignore or downplay the material realm. Rather, we have to recognize that the physical world and material pleasures are not evil. God created a good world, and the fall was no less spiritual than it was physical, and God's plan has always been to redeem and to restore the physical world. You see, God's future that he has planned is not some sort of spiritual future in which we are floating around as spirits in some sort of a purely spiritual realm. It is that God is redeeming and restoring the physical world. It is very physical God's redemption. The world has been distorted by sin, but God's plan for the future is not to eliminate a physical world. Rather, it is to redeem it and restore it. What it calls us to is to recognize that the gifts of the material world are beautiful and good, 
when they're used within God's plan and they don't become our ultimate source of contentment. But material possessions and pleasures, they make wonderful gifts, but they make terrible gods. And what I think we see in the world often is to make those material things gods. But what we see among Christians sometimes is an uncertainty about how do we use these material things in a way that is glorifying to God. Every human being senses the presence, the pull of the spiritual realm. We've spoken of this before, right? That Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is written on our heart. The way that I would say it is is that it's weaved into our nature. We've quoted Augustine before from the Confessions, right? That God has made us for himself and that our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. We are built for the spiritual realm, for God, for communion with him, for union with him. And sometimes it seems like Robert Plant has tried and not only Robert Plant, obviously, many musicians that we've discussed tried to satisfy this yearning with something that in this sense, because we're speaking of God, is far less, right, with material pleasures. Other times he's tried to fulfill it with his fascination with spirituality, the occult. When asked about his religious faith, Plant's only reply was, my religion? I'm one of the children of the sun. That's where we came from. <laughs> Okay. Children of the Sun, it's kind of interesting because that's actually a phrase that occurs in the next to the last song on this album, Going to California. And it seems like in that particular song that Children of the Sun is something that points to an artistic community that had existed in Laurel County, south of San Francisco, in which Johnny Mitchell and Crosby, Stills, and Nash had been part of that. But it seems like in this quote that that's not what Robert Plant is talking about. He's referring here to all humanity and almost to this idea that we're all nothing but the result of some sort of a cosmic explosion. And that's so sad when you think about it that you've got somebody who clearly has felt the draw of the spiritual, but in the end says we're all just children of the sun. We're all just a result of a cosmic explosion. Yeah. Stairway ends with these words. The tune will come to you at last when all are one and one is all, and she's climbing the stairway to heaven. All are one and one is all. And so it's like Robert Plant is actually looking forward to a moment. He has an eschatology. He's looking for a moment when the material and the spiritual are reconciled. But of course, that only happens in Jesus Christ, in whom the material and the spiritual are reconciled quite literally in the incarnation, but also in what he brings to us in which we can, because of how Christ is redeeming his creation, we can have a right usage, a right enjoyment of the material realm, even as we recognize the beauty, the goodness, the deeper reality of the spiritual realm. To 
Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And also, thank you to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com for more theology and apologetics resources. If you're considering further training in apologetics, I also want to invite you to take a look at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree in apologetics on campus or online, we would be glad to have you as a guest in our virtual preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. That's sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in another podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on three chords and the truth, the apologetics podcast.